Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Green Minds podcast. By now, you probably already know me, but I'm going to say it anyways. I'm Moritz, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, and today I'll be joined by Joel Tasche, founder and CEO of the plastic waste management company CleanHub. Plastic itself is one of the main end products of the fossil fuel industry. We currently create around 240 million tons of plastic waste annually, making up 12% of the global waste, while also making it the single largest non-biodegradable waste contributor. And while we found an almost infinite amount of use cases for the product, we've been far from good at recycling polymers at the end of their lives. Only 9% of plastic waste is being properly recycled, with the rest either being burned to recover the stored energy or ending up on landfills, polluting the land, air and groundwater. Or at least that's what we think. Especially the developed world oftentimes ships off its plastic waste to developing countries, especially in Southeast Asia. While we pretend that this is then no longer our problem, the plastic importing countries struggle to adequately manage the waste, which has led to over 14 million tons of plastic waste entering the oceans each year, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And that's where CleanHub enters the game. With the help of plastic credits and their own waste recognition software, the company is able to provide members of society of these plastic waste importing countries with an additional income while also making sure that the polymers do not end up in the ocean in the first place. But before I get ahead of myself, why not have a real expert explain the plastic problem and more importantly, what CleanHub is doing to curb carbon emissions. that welcome joel happy to have you on here so before we dive deep into clean hub and what you guys are doing maybe just quickly onto you how did you actually get into the whole let's say sustainability climate tech space and what ultimately led you to then also found your own company yeah first of all thanks for having me i think for me there was never that one single eureka moment that pushed me into what i'm doing it's been I think also informed by the way how I was brought up. I always tell people I grew up at Lake Constance, biggest mm -hmm. lake in Germany. Um, and I spent my entire childhood sailing and um, later started surfing. And I would say <laughs> since since early childhood, I, I love the thought of making some extra money. So um, yeah. with these big festivals at the lake and you could collect the cups and mm -hmm. return them for deposits. Um, we actually sold ice cream. I hope the tax authorities are not listening. We sold ice cream from German discounters to rich Swiss yard owners on the other side of the border. So yeah, I grew up um, spending all my time in nature, basically, and appreciated the way that I was brought up and appreciated living life on a clean planet. And then later through surfing, I got to explore other parts of the world, um, which are equally beautiful but at the same time also heavily polluted. Um, so through surfing, I literally got in touch with plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. And there was always an annoyance. And even before it became kind of mainstream in 2017, 2018, when China closed the borders for plastic waste. Um, so I participated in many, many beach cleanups before. 
and felt the frustration of going back the next day and the beach basically looked exactly the same. So yeah, there was always something in the back of my mind. And then I started my startup career with a fleet management company in, in Zurich mm-hmm. called Avrios and um, got really infected by the startup bug. But after three years, I said, okay, fleet management, there's more interesting topics than that. Yeah. And I decided to start my own company. And then I sat down and said, okay, what are topics that I'm really interested in? How do I want to spend my life going forward? And I learned about the concept of the circular economy and how that could also be a solution for plastic pollution and started doing research. And through that research, I eventually ended up with the concept of cleanup. Okay. You mentioned briefly before, in 2017-18, China closed its borders to Mm -hmm. plastic waste. So maybe before we get into, okay, how can we actually clean up the plastic Mm -hmm. that we've already polluted or that we are still polluting, maybe let's take a look at plastic itself, because when I look at the product itself, it's highly interesting, it's great, it has so many use cases, it has brought us probably a lot of also economic success, uh, it's played a massive role in that. So how, especially we in the Western world, how do we use plastic and what happens actually to the plastic that we use or what used to happen? Yeah. Um... I, I agree that plastic is a fantastic material in many regards, especially as a packaging material, mm-hmm. right? This is a 40% of plastic is being used in packaging. Um, others is then in automotive, like construction, or different kinds of industry, but 40% is packaging. And packaging has the role to protect, preserve, and promote products. And plastic is doing a fantastic job at protecting and preserving products. So mm-hmm. we are able to extend shelf life, for example. We can put products on the shelf and you can eat them for way longer you will, or you're reducing food waste, which has also big benefits for, for the entire um, climate space, right? Yeah. I think at promoting, it's doing a less and less good job. And that is the problem because plastic remains intact for a long time. It doesn't degrade or it doesn't compost away. So if you drop it into the environment, it will stay there. And that's what people see. And that's that's an issue, right? So um, plastic has a very, very negative connotation with the consumer nowadays. And I think rightfully so if it pollutes the environment and if it's causing harm, right? At the same time, I think what's interesting is that economies always strive to make things more convenient for consumers mm-hmm. and plastic played a big big role in that um basically you can buy everything packed up delivered to your house and so plastic in the end is everywhere we now have it in cosmetics we have it in our clothing we have it in in our food and before 2017 2018 30 percent of our plastic waste was shipped off to to china okay um, for them to take care of it. And then at some point, China says, like, look, you can't send us all your waste. We are at full capacity. Our economy is growing. Um, no more. And that suddenly put the entire market under massive pressure, right? Because we didn't have the, the necessary capacities to properly handle plastic waste. So people started to look for new avenues to send off plastic. And um, that's, I think, a big, big problem in, in that space because maybe to finish that thing is not all plastic is recyclable and yeah that 
means um, the plastic that cannot be recycled needs to go into disposal. And in Germany, we have roughly 80 waste to energy plants where this material is incinerated, but that costs money. If you want to dispose of waste, you have to pay for that. And these disposal fees can be roughly $150 a ton. And well, if you are a disposal company or if you are a plastic collection company and somebody from Turkey, Poland, um, African states, Asian countries, offers you to accept that waste for $10 or $20, yeah. that's, that's a pretty stark incentive to send it abroad, right? And this is in the end what, what happened. This led to illegal waste exports because people were trying to cut costs also. But when we ship our plastic waste to other countries, what is the, uh, what is the use case ultimately for those countries? Is it just simply they're getting paid to store the plastic waste and that's it? Or is it that they actually use it for waste to energy plants, etc.? No. Um, in, in most cases, it's also pretty illegal stuff that's happening there. Um, because, well, you can't just take the plastic and dump it somewhere on a rice field and leave it there. And if you own that land, right, and you get $10 for every ton that you store there, that's a fantastic business. But people don't secure these landfills. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, in other cases, plastic is being exported for incineration as well. Um, there are plastic importing countries which have big incineration um, capacities. Actually, for example, Denmark is an importing plastic waste okay. um, to, to fill capacities, but that's not necessarily illegal then, right? And there was already regulatory changes to that, so um, to, to even tighten it, um, that falls under the so-called Basel Convention, which usually handles the shipment of hazardous and toxic waste, mm -hmm. um, and where it's not allowed to ship certain waste materials into certain countries. And a lot of plastic waste now actually falls under that Basel Convention, which makes it even more illegal than it was before. So it's getting harder and harder to do these bad practices. That makes sense. Um, now, diving into what cleanup actually does, um, on the Green Minds podcast, we've discussed new alternative ways to basically produce plastic-like packaging. We've discussed plastic recycling or new ways to recycle plastic that is not yet recyclable. But you guys are targeting basically then the third pillar, which is the plastic waste that has already been created, right? No. Yes. Um... I think the broader thing that we do, so we are very, very interested in the circular economy. Mm -hmm. But if you look at plastic pollution, it's like obviously waste exports are an issue, but that's a topic for Interpol. That's a topic for the police, not yeah. for cleanup. Um, the other big, big issue that we have is two billion households in the world are not connected to waste pickups. However, they are still consuming. Right? Mm -hmm. So they produce waste, they dispose of it in nature, they dispose of it in the next river. We started projects in, for example, North Sulawesi, where there was a sign next to the river that literally said, please dump the waste in the river, not next to it. Because if you put it in the river, it's gone, right? It yes. goes somewhere. It's not your problem anymore. And people in many parts of the world still burn the waste under the open sky. And mm -hmm. um, there's studies that suggest that this is responsible for up to 10% of greenhouse gas equivalent emissions, which is massive, right? That's more than yeah. the cement industry, that's more than the agricultural sector. So these bad practices are incredibly harmful. And 
we said, okay, if we want to stop plastic pollution, we need to connect these two billion households. Mm-hmm. Ideally, we will get there at some point. But yeah. um, if you then look at the economic model of collecting waste, you pretty quickly see that it's not playing out because you have to pay for the staff that is collecting the waste. You have to pay for sorting. You have to pay for transportation. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the global recycling rates, 9% of plastic is being recycled. 91 is disposed of, landfilled, incinerated. What does that mean? This 91% does not hold any economic value. Because why do we throw something away? Because it loses the value to us as consumers, right? Say, of course. We do collect the, the, the plastic bottles for the deposit schemes because we get 25 cents back. We throw away other stuff where we don't see any value in it. And if you can't recycle it, there's no off-taker for that waste. Because mm-hmm. what I said earlier is like, Currently, you have to send that stuff into disposal and the company that's accepting that waste is charging you money for it. Yes. Yeah. So it's a horrible business case to collect non-recyclable plastic because you have to pay for the collection, sorting, transportation yeah. and for disposal and nobody's paying you for it. And in, in Germany, for example, this is solved by uh, the so-called Grüner Punkt, the green dot, um, where the producer of the packaging has to pay into a central fund basically and that fund pays for the waste collection yeah Uh, and this is a system that we are basically voluntarily adapting to other markets so we say hey you are a producer of plastic packaging you can pay us and we're going to make sure that all plastic waste is being collected so we make the collection of plastic or we make waste collection an economic feasible activity if that makes yes. sense. Yeah. So in the end, it, it's done via plastic credit, very similar to carbon credits. And what we do in the middle is we build the entire track and trace system to make sure that if you spend a euro in that system, it also does the appropriate job. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, it's of course, firstly, you guys are not then tackling plastic pollution, thereby climate issue, but also it's also a social issue that you're are targeting, right? Because you are helping people ultimately in developing nations to not only clean up the environment, but also make a living off of that. Yeah, exactly. So I think our entire philosophy is we believe that plastic should never enter the environment in the first place, um, mm-hmm. should never become a pollutant. And um, that's why the system is optimized for incentivizing household collection. Because we put value specifically on the non-recyclable material. And what does that mean in return? Um, You can basically now put all your dry waste into one bag and have that collected by someone. And that person that collects that waste knows exactly, I'm going to get paid for every single gram of waste that I just collected here. You can send the plastic bottles into recycling, paper, cardboard, highly recyclable. There's a price on that. Metals great for recycling, but also the residue now has value. So it now starts to make sense to run household collection, right? And we partner with local waste management companies in countries like India, Indonesia, Tanzania, Cambodia, to perform exactly that service. And they obviously then create jobs for the people to collect the waste, to sort the waste Mm -hmm. in the warehouse so that we make sure that everything that can be recycled goes into recycling, that everything that cannot be recycled goes into disposal. Um, so yeah, there's a big, big social component to it, but there's also a big, um, yeah, actually climate component to it, right? Because yeah. we stop the open burning. 
we stop people from burning their waste in their backyard under the open sky. We make sure that more material goes into recycling systems and we make sure that the non-recyclables are disposed in a way that is more environmental friendly than the current practice. And we can talk about that if you want as well. Because yeah. Might be a bit controversial. No, but please let's dive a bit deeper into that because I assume once or ultimately at some point we might have recycling technologies that will also be able to recycle types of plastics that are currently non-recyclable. Yep. But what is happening to them at the moment and how can we actually dispose them in a, let's say, the most environmentally friendly manner, as yep. at least as of now? Yeah. So in, in waste management, there's a decision making tool or like a framework, which is called the waste management hierarchy. And most mm -hmm. people know the first three R's, which is reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah. There's two more layers to that hierarchy, which is recovery, which means energy recovery. And then the last one is disposal or landfill. Mm -hmm. And in, in Germany, we banned landfilling as a practice in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And the material went into energy recovery. The problem is now we have 80 waste to energy plants that constantly want to be fed. So there's a strong, strong lock-in factor that we continue burning waste, basically. The other industry that can use that waste as a fuel and already exists and has massive climate challenges or carbon challenges is the cement industry. Um, they have to heat up their rotary kiln to turn limestone into clinker and to 1,400 degrees Celsius. That's the temperature that they need, 1,250 to 1,400 degrees. And that requires massive amounts of energy. Um, this yeah. is where 40% of the carbon emissions in a cement plant come from. And that is usually done with coal or lignite. And coal and lignite have an emission factor of 95 kilogram per gigajoule of energy produced. Mm -hmm. Mixed plastic waste is at 75 kilogram per gigajoule produced. Yeah? So there's 20 kilogram left or less yes. carbon produced to produce one gigajoule of energy. Um, so currently 95% of our waste goes into cement production. It does reduce the carbon emissions of the plant. Um, yeah. However, I would be the last person to say that this is the perfect solution. We think this is a bridge solution. It is better than the current status quo for two reasons. Um, a, if you burn plastic under the open sky, you reach temperatures within the within the combustion of 400, 500 degrees Celsius. And in the temperature frame between 300 to 900 degrees, you create furans and toxins, which yes. are horrible. Yes. As you go beyond 900 degrees Celsius, furans and toxins don't form anymore, or they are basically destroyed. Okay. The cement kiln has 1,250 degrees Celsius, so it's much, much cleaner combustion than what we currently have. And, and I think this is where people can have different opinions. The cement companies operate anyway. They will produce yeah. the cement. They are running 24-7, 365 days a year, and currently they run mostly on coal. Um, so if they take in the plastic, that is less emissions. But the thing is, it still produces carbon emissions and who better if there's obviously no carbon emissions, right? But it's reduction. And um, what we have in our contracts is that A, cement companies are never allowed to, to buy a stake in CleanHub. Um, okay. We close that exit path basically because we do not want to be the energy provider. 
Yeah. Um, that's the that's the one thing. And the other thing is, as soon as we see other technologies popping up that can handle that waste in a better way, we are allowed to switch volumes over so we don't have any lock-in factors. And that was very important to us. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. And we've had a discussion about cement plants, etc., with a few podcast guests, with the founder of Brimstone, for example. And ultimately, there are different ways, again, to tackle the cement no. emissions issue, similar to plastic, similar to almost any other big climate issue we have. There's no one solution that works, but you have to tackle many, many different issues. The inputs, mm. the energy inputs, etc. But if you're saying this is the bridge solution for now, for however long, what would be your ultimate preferred outcome? Would it be, okay, we are able to recycle all of it? Or would you say maybe in the end, at one point, we won't even need plastic because we found a biodegradable super product that is able to do the same as plastic, any kind of mm -hmm. plastic, and is biodegradable within a couple of weeks, and, and yeah. that's it. I think it's both. Um, so in, in waste management, you always talk about upstream and downstream solutions. Upstream solutions would be anything that is packaging innovation, right? That would be compostable packaging, for example. Mm -hmm. Downstream solutions are what happens at the end of the life with that material. And I think there's a lot of innovation happening on both fronts. You have companies like Traceless and yeah. they, they are working on upstream solutions to produce better packaging material from different feedstock, also not from crude oil. And you have downstream solutions who are looking into turning plastic waste into hydrogen, um, into pyrolysis oil, which you can turn back into plastics. So it's going to be a mix for the different applications, I believe. The fundamental truth that always remains is you will always need waste collection companies. Because even if you produce a 100% biodegradable product, you still don't want people to dump their waste into the open, right? No. Banana peel is 100% compostable. I still don't want my neighbor to throw that on the street. Yeah. So you will always need that company that comes and picks up the waste. And this is exactly the, the sector that we are trying to empower, whom we are trying to give the tools to run their business better. And one of the things is obviously then the plastic credit so that they can fund their operations in a better way. But we are also building basically... Yeah, what we call now the operating system for them. So the software tools to run their business, to have a proper ERP system for their warehouses so they can see what do I have in stock, how much cash flow can I expect from these things, so to run a more efficient waste management company in the end. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. You mentioned the plastic credits that you yeah. ultimately sell. The plastic credits themselves, that's not an invention or term that you guys came up with, but that's actually a properly certified process that needs to go into that for a plastic credit to actually exist. But obviously you sell those plastic credits to big corporations, FMCG companies, etc. Now with that always of course comes the problem of which with greenhouse gas emissions we've got greenwashing in this case. I don't know if you would call it plastic washing. Um, but Brands referring to say that they offset their plastic emissions and that they are quote unquote plastic neutral. Mm -hmm. Do you see, I would see kind of a couple of risks related to that, no. um, that, that companies don't do it in a proper way or that, that uh, consumers are potentially misled. How do you tackle that? 
Um, I think we will also adopt the claims that that our customers can make with, with mm -hmm. cleanup. I still believe that the claim itself is correct because yeah. if you bring in a certain amount and you take out a certain amount, by definition, you neutralize the factors. And um, I believe that the concept itself makes a lot of sense. And the problem is more that we see so many credits not working. Um, okay. If we talk about additionality, right? And that is a discussion that is very, very actively happening in the carbon space. Yeah. You can also see that in the plastic space, right? There's companies out there who, you know, a plastic bottle, PET, that material, if you get one ton of that, can trade for up to $1,800 a ton, which mm -hmm. is a fantastic price. This is why everybody's collecting it. Um, and then there's companies that put a plastic credit on top of that. So basically, you can trade it for $2,300 a ton. Where's the additionality? I think a plastic credit yes. should only be given to, to residual waste, and then it has additionality. The broader discussion that is going on is, I can only speak for the plastic space, right? Yeah, um, society or scientists, legislators, everybody says we need extended producer responsibility. What does that mean? The polluter pays, mm -hmm. but in a mandatory form. Currently, it's voluntary. Um, so people are doing it as they, they decide to do because they say this is the right thing to do. And I don't see the difference between these two things. Obviously, I would hope for mandatory um, payment schemes. But if you apply first principle thinking, the economic model of a waste management company is not working without subsidies. Yes. Plastic credit is one way to do that and to make waste management work. And at the same time, we can't from today to tomorrow completely eradicate plastic, right? That's not going to happen. And that's why I think we need to be a bit careful of calling companies greenwashers um, the moment that they do offset, I think it's important to to challenge them and to see what is actually going on behind the scenes. Like, what are you doing to reduce um, yes. your externalities? But in the end, I think we should rather applaud them and say, it's like, hey, voluntarily you're taking responsibility for for your externalities. That's a good thing, and we wish that more companies in the world would do that. Um, mm -hmm. That's my thought on it. Absolutely. No, that, that makes sense. And of course, you're trying or you're doing your best uh, that no false claims are being made. And you also, what I find super interesting, when people go into your website, there's actually like a live tab that they can see of all the plastic that's being collected. How does this proof of work process within cleanup and for the people that collect the, the plastic waste, how does that, how does it work? No. The, the big difference between plastic and carbon, even though plastic is nothing else than yeah. <laughs> carbon in a different form, is plastic is tangible, right? I can grab it, I can put it on a scale, I can say this is what's being collected. It's a bit more difficult to do that with a gas. Um, so that's the big advantage of, of plastic. So when we had that observation, we said, okay, we should collect all evidence Mm -hmm. to back any kind of claim that we make. Because in the end, the biggest risk for us as cleanup is reputation risk. That somebody says, it's like, what you say you're doing is not actually happening. 
And I think we've been ahead of time. This is now coming with the with the green claims initiative in the EU that you have to substantiate your claims and we can do that, right? Because we collect the data along the way. So our waste collection partners get an app from us with which they have to document the waste collection at every single point. So they're constantly uploading data onto our platform and this is also something that everybody can see. The evidence is live on our website um, in, in real time. And every picture obviously contains information. You can see the scale, you can see the waste bag, you can see the truck, you can see the bales that are being transported. And we run algorithms in the background that is extracting more information from the data. So we have image recognition, for example, that then also says, okay, based on the information that I can see, the bale has a certain volume. Does the weight that was entered make sense for the material that this is supposed to be? Does the weight add up to what it should be, or is that an anomaly? Um, mm -hmm. When we detect bare hands on a picture, for example, we know that this is against our compliance standards. So we ask the people to put gloves on, right? So there's also social okay. that. And then we make sure that the entire mass balance adds up. It would be a very, very bad thing if there's less waste registered at the beginning of the process than what you eventually dispose of, right? That would mean that there's avenues of waste into our system, which we don't know about and which we don't want to have. Um, so the system is constantly checking for compliance and this is what's done by, by algorithms. And for those interested in the scalability of the system, mm. this is exactly that, right? Because we can basically upload unlimited numbers of, of waste onto the platform, but our auditing cost is not going up. So we will always maintain the highest level of, of compliance without having to invest more money into it. Yeah, so I can I can sense the technology that you guys are using is already quite advanced, quite robust, actually. Yeah. So let's say, let's have a look, let's say five years in the future, two years, yeah. what do you say? What's next for cleanup? Where are you guys, where are you guys heading? Is it just scaling up your operations? Or are you looking to enter new markets, new countries? Where do you see the company heading at the moment? Yeah, um, there's two big things that we're currently working on. A, through the track and trace, we discovered that this is adding a lot of value for the waste management company, that they have access to proper data. Um, yeah. So we are heavily investing into becoming more the, the operating system for the waste management world, that waste operations run on cleanup. That's the, that's the first thing. And the second thing that we're doing is we're building networks of individual waste management companies and through that, we also get access to recyclable feedstock. Um, so we are currently looking into basically also the trading aspect of recyclable waste. Um, and my big goal would be that in two years, we can see the first shampoo bottles on the shelves mm -hmm. with a little QR code next to it. And the consumer can see where that plastic was sourced from. And that cleanup is becoming basically the standard for a proper, compliant and fair circular economy in the end. Mm -hmm can can evidence that through data and not through stories but that people can really dig into it and, and see there's a good thing basically that we kind of become the fair trade <laughs> of the circular economy like a proper quality standard i yeah that, that would that would actually be that would be incredible um before we slowly end things uh we oftentimes we have all kinds of researchers and, and other uh, professions on the podcast, but every time we have founders on it, we'd like to ask just like if you have somebody who is looking to enter the 
startup space, the climate tech startup space. Looking back, what would you say? What's the one, two, fifth, three, go three? But uh, one advice that you would have, saying like, mm -hmm. okay, when you look at whatever you want to do, what's increment? What do you need to do? And what would be the one advice before setting off? Um, first of all, be careful taking my advice because you don't know. <laughs> It's going to be successful, but um, in the end, if you're, you will always have an early stage company and mm -hmm. the, the lifeblood for that is that you do something that customers want. Um, so try and validate the model as early as possible. Call people, call potential customers, see if your model is working and if there's demand for it and get someone on the team who really knows the topic itself. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot that you can learn by yourself. In my case, I did a lot of the learning of the waste management industry myself, but um, there's a lot more scrutiny for industry knowledge in the entire climate space than I think in a standard SaaS game, mm -hmm. because you're doing something that's, even if it's B2B, consumers have an interest in it as well. And you need to be in a position that you can defend your position backed by science, backed yeah. by facts, and have these facts straight. Yeah. And that's important. Lovely. Joel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Green Mats podcast. Uh, we're looking forward to following Cleanup's journey and keep looking out for those QR codes on the shampoo bottles. Yeah, so exactly. thank you, thank you very much. And uh, all the best for for anything that's coming for cleanup. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me here. It was a pleasure to, to talk to you.